Good to see you again. It is always good to see you too, my friend. Um, yeah, you're you're about to leave again, I guess. I'm about to get on an aluminium tube. <laughs> That's how they say it down there. An aluminum tube at 40,000 feet over the Pacific Ocean for a two-month tour of Australia. 51 performances in 60 days. Good God, man. So it's two months. I thought it was like a month-long thing. You're gone for a good chunk. It's long, but... Uh, Half of it is the makeup tour from 2020 COVID cancellations. And the beautiful thing is that so many people held on to their tickets for two and a half years. Ah, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I'd like to tag along. Maybe since you're gone so long, maybe I'll just, you know, hop on a, That'd be a tour great. myself. I'd love, you know, if you came, I'd have you sweep up after the show <laughs> and you can carry the luggage and you can lift the uh, lighting trusses. Oh, man, I don't get the little box seat next to the stage. I don't think so. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> Hey, David, what in the latest paleo news? Yeah, it seems that they're finding Lagerstatten oh, all over the place. Well, yeah, an incredible one has been found in yeah. China. Let's just define what a Lagerstatten is. Lagerstatten is a lot of fun to say. It means uh, the big... Wait, what'd you say? La a lot of fun? Fun. It's fun. Oh, it's fun to say. I thought you were speaking French to no, me. It, it is. <laughs> it's a lot of fun to say. <laughs> it is. It is a lot of fun to say. Lagerstatten. So uh, Lagerstatten is an extraordinary fossil find. It's a German, it's a German word. word for a lot of fossils. The word Lagerstatt is German, where lager means storage and Stadt means place. And a Lagerstatten is a sedimentary deposit that exhibits extraordinary fossils with exceptional preservations, sometimes including preserved soft tissues, feathers, and even skin pigments. Lagerstattens are located in select places around the world and our paleontological gold mines of preservation. Lagerstatten in China, a couple of locations in China, and it's a chunk of geologic time uh, that has been, you know, basically uh, rare, super rare to find vertebrates at all in Silurian rocks way back, you know, 400 million years-ish. Yeah, but anyways, in China, they found this incredible preservation of Silurian-aged fossil fish. And it really is a window into the origins of uh, jaws and the origin when the split between the bony fish and the sharks happen. So the cartilaginous, the chondrichthians, yeah, between the osteichthians, the bony fish, and then the very origin of jaws, the nastones, gnastones. Right. And uh, since 90... 9.8% of the world's vertebrates are jawed vertebrates, and there's only a couple right. hagfish and lampreys that don't have jaws. Having a jaw, and for oh. me, my ability to sit here and talk to you right now, flapping my jaw, right, closing my mouth, chomp, chomp. Yeah, but wait, 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 Ray. I'm a ventriloquist. I don't need my <laughs> jaw to talk. <laughs> wait. Or anybody who has tetanus. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, wait. So, now, now so, actually, that, that brings up an interesting idea that maybe you have some sort of ancient sort of hagfish gene within your body that allows your jaw be, not to yeah. function, and thus you can be a ventriloquist. We should I look have into been that. Called a hagfish on many occasions. Yeah, you but anyway, hagfish. So, well, let me get this straight. So, in the Cambrian and Ordovician, there were no jawed fishes, and is that correct? 
Chart fishes appeared when? I would say they do not appear until the Ordovician, I believe. Yes. Okay, so the late Ordovician, right. And then there is this kind of uh, absence in the fossil record uh, until this Lagerstatten kind of right. brought light With, more species. Right, there's different kinds of preservation that happens, you know, but this is an extraordinary preservation where the fish are like there in exquisite detail. Some of right. my paleo nerd pals on Facebook have been posting these pictures of these just absolutely stunning fossils. Everything is there, and it's just so cool, beautifully preserved. Yeah, it's uh, kind of got my uh, paleo uh, artist in me kind of chomping at the bit to draw some of these uh, fishies, you know? So. And did they find the first evidence of actual teeth in one yes. of these? Yes, But the first time teeth appeared in the fossil record? I believe so. I will need to read the paper more closely. And perhaps someone has already asked, as uh, I shared this on my Facebook page, will this be a future Paleo Nerd episode? And perhaps it will. Of course it will. We have to dive down deep into Well, that. we have to get through to a scientist in China, yeah. which might be a challenge. I think that's, that's one of the problems with us being non-scientists, is here we are spouting all this information, and, and we're, we're missing some very key facts. <laughs> well, we do not have a scientist sitting in the room with us to correct us. No. I usually, uh, you know, don't make that mistake and usually travel with a scientist. You know, a few of them, I've, I could shamelessly name drop them, but they would be sitting in the room saying, no, 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 that's, you know, they would correct me. So anyone that wants to uh, fact check us uh, or correct us uh, will do so either in our emails or we'll, we'll clear up the mess that we may have made in the future episode. But I think, you know. Great. We're, we're pretty savvy, man. We're not so bad in our paleo chops. Tell me about this guest and how did you find her? Well, I've heard about today's guest, Yasmina Veeman, via some friends at the Yale Peabody Museum who were uh, talked about uh, her extraordinary and revolutionary research that she's been doing. And she's been described to me as a, as a brilliant young scientist. And uh, the more I, I read her work, the more I was just astounded. So... I reached out to her directly, got her email, and she's excited to be on the show. Our guest today is Yasmina Veeman. She is a molecular paleobiologist, and she's at the Whoa. University of Chicago right now, where she's doing her postdoc work. Cool, cool. Well, this is going to be exciting, and uh, this is one of the most technical research Three interviews I've ever done. Yeah, I did a so, crash course. At, I was not a chemistry student at all in high school or in yeah. college. I avoided yeah. chemistry, but that is what Yasmina has been doing is chemistry, man. She's doing, she's, yeah. yeah. Let's get her to make it easy for us laymen to understand, and let's uh, call her up right now. Call her, man. Call her. Hey, Dave, meet Yasmina Veeman. She's a molecular paleobiologist. And she's currently the Agarone Institute Fellow at the University of Chicago and the Field Museum. Wow, well, nice <laughs> to meet you, Yasmina. My pleasure to be here. I'm going to start off by saying, are you a paleo nerd? I am definitely a paleo nerd. <laughs> Yay. Yay, so you're one of us. That's good to know. It's good to know. I've been hearing a lot about you. And, and I want to know a little bit more about your, your background. You were born in Germany. Well, not that long ago. You're very young. So tell us about your, your upbringing in Germany. Yes, yeah, so I'm originally from Germany. Um, I was born uh, in like a tiny village close to Bonn, which is the former capital. So it's the western part of Germany. And um, 
I grew up there for a couple of years, but eventually my family moved to a tiny village. And when I say tiny village, I mean very tiny village. We have more cattle than people. Um, (laughs) And uh, I enjoyed the country life um, in eastern Westphalia in uh, our village called Veal for a couple of years. That's where I went to high school. But didn't you start college at a very young age like like at 15 or something yeah so i've been i've been very fortunate i have to say wait <laughs> was... are you smart are you one of those smart <laughs> smart people oh i i don't know about that um but uh, I, I was i was very lucky i was very good in uh, chemistry i was a high school student to the extent that my high school teachers got very annoyed with me and thought we have to find <laughs> a solution to keep her occupied to keep her busy so they recommended me for one of these uh, junior genius fellowships, and I started studying chemistry when I was fifteen. When you were fifteen, <laughs> that's, that's... so yeah. Th- did the paleo bug bite you before the chemistry bug? It actually did. What's the what's the progression there? It is, I guess, a somewhat non-traditional story for a paleontologist. I was absolutely excited about dinosaurs, generally about all kinds of extinct life forms that just look so very different from modern biodiversity. What was it about chemistry that got you excited? Because that's very odd for most children to, at at your early age, to want to study chemistry. Yeah, you know, when we started to have chemistry classes in high school, and, you know, chemistry has this very unique way of tackling problems, of thinking about problems. And most people probably hated chemistry in high school. I have to say, I loved it. (laughs) Really? You're, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but what and was love- it about it? Was it the fact that you are doing chemistry is, is a form of mathematics and you have to know, you know, all the elements? What was it about it? Was it the, the variety? What, what was it? I think it is uh, the ability to, to answer macroscopic, so very big questions based on the smallest entities. And I mean, I guess it is what, like, you know, excites lots of people about physics, basically, like taking it like below the molecular below the atomic level Hmm. in terms of understanding the world around you. But I think the really exciting part about chemistry is that chemistry basically explains how life on our planet works. And that really, yeah, really captured me. Uh, I have to say like the parts of chemistry that I enjoy generally still the most um, uh, uh, are the ones that most people like really don't like, right? I mean, people are usually not excited about inorganic chemistry, but less excited about organic chemistry because that's kind of complicated. You have all these structures and, uh, you know, sometimes there are no rules, but I actually like enjoyed organic chemistry the most. There's a lot of creativity tied to some of these processes, developing new synthetic pathways. And yeah, wow. I think that the general explanatory potential behind behind biochemistry. Right. So you're organic. Chem- you love the organic chemistry over the inorganic. Well, it has to relate to life. Yeah. Yes. Well, <laughs> I'm just curious, too, that was there a pivotal point in your upbringing where was there a teacher that got you into chemistry? Was it was it your parents? Where did this where did this actually happen? In the beginning, it was actually very hard for me, especially in chemistry, because I knew absolutely nothing about it. So I kind of, I guess, turned that weakness into a strength because there was this sum- one summer break where I decided for myself, okay, you know, like you have to catch up, you find some fascination mm-hmm. for chemistry. And I actually unexpectedly did. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, afterwards, I really fell in love with the subject. And I started to read more and more. Wow. It was like about 10th grade. 
when I was 15 that my teachers were like, okay, at this point, you know, everything we have to teach you about chemistry in high school. So why don't you go on and actually make use of all that knowledge and, and study chemistry? So you started actually college at age 15? Yes. Wow. Okay. What's the normal age in Germany to start college? Um, so you, 18, 19? Yeah. So you graduate high school right. when you're... Um, so I'm still gen the generation of uh, high school students who had like a total of 13 years sure. of school. And so you, we graduate like around 19. Wow. Wow. You're a prodigy. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have that phase in your life where you uh, kind of fascinated with the... the prehistoric past? Absolutely, yeah. So this was eventually, and it is still like the reason why I decided not to become a chemist, but uh, stayed with my original fascination for okay. for extinct life on our planet. So I was about three years old um, when I fell in love in, I think, our little bookstore with uh, a um, beautifully illustrated, like, small children's book mm -hmm. um, on dinosaurs, and but also other kinds of extinct life. So we had, like, saber-toothed cats in there, and I oh, remember yeah. a couple of, like, early tetrapods and um and cambrian weird wonders yeah i got definitely very excited with extinct life forms when i was very young i drew dinosaurs as well oh good um, to know good to oh. know yes <laughs> oh. and i read you know i read a lot so you know like most of these kids it became some kind of passion slash obsession <laughs> it really just happened later on that i got more and more excited about the, the mechanisms that actually explain how life diversifies, why certain animals go extinct, why others survive, which is basically from where I took it then to the more molecular level. So that is what you have been, uh, I've been told uh, about your work. And when I hear about your work, you are basically a super pioneer in the world of paleontology because you've brought a chemical approach. There are no, not really a lot of chemistry that happens in paleontology, and so you're you're kind of a, a revolutionary in that in that field. Would would you say that biomolecular right point of view? So how 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 are you doing things differently than have been traditionally done? So I think what has to be really acknowledged here is that the field of molecular paleobiology actually is quite a bit older than most people think. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, yeah, it is It is very important, at least to me, to point out that um, some of the most inspiring scientists when I was very young and thought about, you know, how can I combine my fascination for paleontology with my passion for chemistry? So one of the most inspiring scientists, uh, basically Mary Schweitzer, who, for example, looked at the preservation of different kinds of soft tissue structures, of different kinds of potential biomolecular building blocks, especially proteins, in deep time, where Derek Briggs, who combines basically the fossil record with investigations of taphonomy, trying to understand how organisms decay, what preserves and what doesn't. Um, Jakob Winter, when I was a teenager, that was about the time when there were the first big papers in the news about dinosaur color, basically using right. chemistry, fossil melanosomes to get an idea of, of what extinct animals looked like. So that was very, very inspiring to me as, as a young person, thinking about potential career opportunities. There has been a lot of work done, but it has been very critically received simply for the reason that we didn't really have a mechanism, a chemical mechanism, that would explain the paradox of finding these different types of soft tissues that would originally be composed of different biomolecules in the living animal what do you mean by paradox? Oh, yeah, so with the paradox, I'm basically <laughs> referring to the fact that with the traditional way of thinking about how different types of molecules um, are altered 
during fossilization or are lost during fossilization, right. it was generally assumed that these um, all kinds of soft tissues that were originally composed of proteins and lipids and sugars, they should not preserve. All these macromolecular building blocks, they should just decay away almost immediately post-mortem. Right. And I think here it gets very exciting because if we actually then look at the fossil record, that is in total contradiction with what we find because we find abundant soft tissues. We find dinosaur feathers. We find soft tissue impressions of uh, entirely non-biomineralized, so um, basically animals without any heart tissues, of entirely non-biomineralized animals, like back ranging into the Cambrian, into the Neoproterozoic. So we're talking about very, very ancient fossils here. Sure, but are you saying that there is molecular signatures of a decayed lipid, decayed fat, or a molecular signature of... of the actual um, animal itself. Do you think you can actually dive deeper and see something that is no longer there, there as a molecular remnant or signature? Yeah, so that is basically one of the exciting aspects of the work that I'm doing. Um, sort of like, you know, coming from the from the chemical background, from the more chemical perspective on things. We looked specifically at what kind of mechanisms could explain the paradoxical preservation of soft tissues in the fossil record. And we realized that um, in terms of the chemistry, it was actually very obvious once we started to look at many, many different kinds of fossils that um, we're looking at these cross-linking processes that are very similar to the types of alterations that we, for example, like during Thanksgiving, when we roast our turkeys in the oven. Uh -huh. So it's basically happening in the skin of the Thanksgiving turkey that makes it crunchy it's called advanced lipoxidation chemistry. This okay. is pretty much, this is pretty <laughs> much what happens during fossilization. Ah, I'll try to use that word next uh, Thanksgiving. Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's always been assumed that all that organic uh, signature is, it's been assumed that it's just gone. It's so old. You're, go, you're talking about going back to the Cambrian half a billion years ago. There's, got, there's nothing in the rocks, but your work is showing that there actually is a biological chemical signal of the animal itself, right? Yeah. So we find for lots of these very ancient fossils what we call carbonaceous compressions. So they are basically these like pliable films of, of squished animals that preserve okay. um, then in, in deepest time. But it was thought that, you know, these are just impressions that are filled mm -hmm. in with right. something, some mineral, that they are just graphite, so basically inorganic. It's that's just and, rock, all right? Basically, yes, it's just so rock. Okay, go ahead. It's basically just rock. And so what we're basically saying, no, this is absolutely not the case. And it's, mm. again, a quite funny story in some ways, because there is the whole discipline of organic geochemistry, right, that investigates um, primarily the preservation of, of solubles, of small molecules in deepest time. And we know that biomarkers, soluble biomarkers, preserve in deepest time Wow. I think it is just quite interesting to realize that there is so little communication between these different disciplines simply because right. the scientists speak a different language. And yes. so what we're basically doing is we're translating between the different disciplines and we're adding the macromolecular perspective here that is on top of the small soluble molecules. Wow. Okay, so let me see if I can get my head around Try, this. Dave, try. <laughs> yeah. You grab a morella or a trilobite or a wawaxia from the Burgess Shale, and you look at it and you assume that it's just rock, but you use this Raman spectroscopy 
which I want to find more about because you helped develop a certain aspect of it, which sees deeper into the chemical signature. So back to what I was saying. So you grab a Wawaxia, which is this really weird looking thing from the Burgess Shale, and we think it's rock, but you go in and you look at it, you see, oh my goodness, it is squished bits of organic residue from the actual body part, the skeleton, the carapace, the, uh, the guts, spines, the guts. the guts, and you can distinguish between those bits of in that rock that we once thought was just a piece of rock? Yes, so we can do that. Wow. And <gasps> I think this is one of the very exciting opportunities that basically comes with it. So obviously the way to do this is, um, you know, we've sampled lots of modern animals, of modern animal tissues. We've sampled the diversity of their fossil representatives through time across the globe across the tree of life, um, really built a very, very large sample set. Then we ex experimentally fossilized effectively following a couple of um, potential reaction schemes that um, connect basically what we see in the modern tissues to what we see in, in their fossil representatives. And so by doing that, we realized, you know, like there is a direct, a chemical mechanistic connection between the original tissues and these, you know, like... Uh, in the Burgess Shale, carbonaceous so the, compression. You make a control products. from the original tissue, from the from the current animals that you pretend to fossilize. Yes. So that's your control, right? So you get the signature of that and to compare it to the ancient. Yes. The signatures that we pick up in, in modern animal tissues, they are obviously a little bit different, more complete, effectively speaking, than what we see in their fossil representatives, especially if they are very old, so they have experienced a lot of pressure and a lot of temperature metamorphism, alterations through time. You know, these biological signatures that, for example, tell us whether a tissue was originally biomineralized, what kind of tissue type we're actually looking at, right, skin, carapace, or guts, mm. that tell us what group of animal we're looking at. So basically, like, the relationship signal in there. These different types of signals, they preserve in deepest time with a little bit of alteration from what we see in their modern analogs, but they are not unrecognizable. And so now we're basically using wow. these different types of signatures and we pick the most exciting questions in the history of life to wow. basically get this physiological information for the first time, integrating data for living and fossil animals in a way that we thought it's never going to be possible. So wait, if I gave you a piece of rock and you didn't know what it was, would you be able to possibly determine what type of animal, of a, a vertebrate or not invertebrate, what? and what age it's from? Yes. C could you do that? Yes, so that is basically what we've done, for example, with the Tully monster. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah, I, was, yeah. I was chomping <laughs> at the bit to talk about the Tully monster. Okay. Right. First, describe the, first describe for our listeners what the Tully the monster is. The Tully monster. It is scary, too. I wouldn't want to. Uh, it's not very big, though, but I wouldn't want to meet it on well, a Well, they're not very river. big, but uh, there's been all this uh, controversy and different ideas about this strange, weird creature from uh, the Chicago area in the Mazon Creek uh, fauna. So these are soft body impressions. There's no skeletal material, but this weird looking worm-like animal with eyes and the ends of two stalks 
and a mouth much like a opabinia, so stretching out with the little. It's a big, huge, long, long schnoz. Stalk. The mouth it's got is a on a stalk like, like a plesiosaur. Well, yeah, almost like it's an elephant. It's not a head. It's a mouth. Like an elephant yeah. trunk with a mouth in the end of it, and yeah. Like, what the hell is this thing? Is it, is it a big worm? Is it? But your work has actually finally nailed it down as a vertebrate, right? Yeah. So, which um, is there was so the original, weird. There was the original idea that it might be a vertebrate, which was a very bold right. claim back then, um, coming from my lab before I started my PhD, before I joined the group. Um, so, a very, very important paper. But so like then there was a lot of criticism afterwards yeah. by uh, by competing groups, yeah. and so I thought uh, you know that is a great opportunity for our molecular biosignatures because in the end you know just as just as Dave said you know you can give me a little scrap like scrappy piece of any kind of carbonaceous fossil don't tell me where it's from don't tell me what it is uh, you can use molecular biosignatures to effectively pinpoint what kind of animal are we looking at. What kind of tissue are we looking at from that animal? Was it biomineralized or not? Uh, where does it fit in the tree of life? Based on that, we can make inferences what kind of time period we're looking at. So we can really learn a lot from, wow. from these macromolecular biosignatures that have previously been pretty much understudied. And so for the Tully monster, we basically did that because lots of these Mason Creek fossils, they're actually carbonaceous in nature. And so we hmm. sampled like across the entire body of different Tully monsters. And then we sampled all other kinds of animals from the Mason Creek fauna, which is quite diverse. So you get a couple of, um, you know, like um, shrimpy things, like that are basically invertebrates, arthropods. Mm -hmm. Then you get annelids, so actual worms. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously you also get a couple of vertebrates. So we have different types of fish there as well. And so we've sampled all of them and basically built a training data set where we could then, based on the molecular fingerprints of the tissues, distinguish, you know, what is a vertebrate, what is an invertebrate. And so we threw in the data for the Tully monster and yeah. basically just asked our software surprise us, tell us what it is. And the Tully monster plots effectively with vertebrates, which wow. is wow. quite exciting and supports the previous studies that were out there that were so critically received. What's so mind-blowing about that, Yasmina, is that where in the heck, this is in the Pennsylvanian age, where in the heck is this line of vertebrates from? Like with, you know, a mouth in the end of a stalk and eyes out in the end of stalks. And like, there's a whole lineage of animals we know, vertebrates that we know nothing about. But that's astounding. But it sounds like you have almost a Star Trek tricorder, a machine that can, can look at any organic fossil and you can tell us where it is. Now, when you said you compared the other the shrimp-like and the annelid worms, you actually do it in the actual locale, so you have a really concise control data. Yeah, so um, we can do both, right? So like um, throughout the projects, we have basically cross-compared fossils, sampled literally like through geological time from the Neoproterozoic to sediments that are a couple of thousands of years old. Um, we've looked at carbonaceous fossils that come from all over the globe, and we can cross-compare fossils like this. Because fossilization processes are somewhat uniformitarian, which is very good for us. Hmm. At the same time, if we want to get the highest possible resolution when it comes to these molecular biosignatures, so if we basically want to minimize the noise that comes, you know, that is introduced by small differences in the chemistry that we have happening 
in different depositional settings, right? So like, for example, like comparing um, an animal that fossilizes in a shallow marine basin versus an animal that fossilizes in a lake mm -hmm. um, to basically minimize these like small differences and cancel them out and really focus on our biosignatures. We ideally want to look at fossils that come from the same site, from the same kind of setting. So they are maximally comparable. Wow. Now, I love to eat ramen, but that's not the ramen that we're going to be uh, yeah, talking no, this about. Is top, this is top shelf ramen. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can, can you briefly yeah. explain very, very to simply the layman. ramen? Yeah. The layman, ramen spectros spectroscopy. Yeah, there you go. And exactly what you did to alter this uh, molecular detector and how it basically works to two people who know just a modicum amount of chemistry. Yeah, no, we can keep it super simple, which is one of the nice things <laughs> about you. Raman spectroscopy. <laughs> so Raman spectroscopy is basically a form of light spectroscopy. So it's closely related to an approach called uh, infrared spectroscopy, but we're using a, we're targeting a different kind of physical interaction between, between matter and light. And so what Raman spectroscopy basically does is you have a laser, um, yeah. right? A laser, laser is monochromatic light. So it's light of one specific wavelength. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. We primarily use green lasers because we get a very good trade-off in terms of the signal to noise ratios with our types of samples when using a green laser. So we're basically shooting this green laser on our fossil sample, and we do this through a microscope aperture. Okay. And um, then once the laser hits our fossil, which we don't have to prepare in any particular way, which is really one of the advantages that, that comes with the approach, so it's completely non-destructive if you just want to get surface compositional data. The laser hits the sample surface, and so what it basically does is it penetrates to some degree into the sample, like usually around 30 microns, depending on the optical density of the material. And then the laser light starts to excite all kinds of molecules, um, but, also, but also all kinds of ionic building blocks in the mineral. So literally like all kinds of chemical... Well, it causes vibrations within the molecular structure yes. and the molecular bonds, yes. right? So this is basically what like the laser light does. You start to initiate these vibrations in the chemical bonds, and then different molecular bonds vibrate in response to their chemical environment, right? Okay. So they vibrate a little bit more, they vibrate a little bit less, they vibrate at a specific frequency that we can pick up then in form of spectra that we detect. So basically, you're zapping it, you're kind of cooking it a little bit, and you're being able to see from the green light, there begins to be the... Well, not really cooking we're it, not, you're we're exciting not it. Okay, you're not cooking it. <laughs> no, you're exciting But you're zapping you're, you're, it, all right? You're just being well, you're, So you have to excite you're, you're, the stuff, and it starts to uh, exude a color spectrum that then you can analyze? Well, it's it's a different, it's not color, but it's, it's a chemical right. spectrum. Yeah, so... Basically, like as the laser light hits okay. like the molecules in the sample, okay. they start to vibrate. We're not chemically altering anything, so no cooking. Okay. That would right, be very bad. I, I, I'll back <laughs> off on that description. Then. We just, I just think of laser beams as melting the face, you know, zapping something. But it depends on how how hot they are. Yes. All right. We're, okay. We're we're not that cool, no. Unfortunately, uh, not. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like you got thousands of it. So basically, like the the lasers, they start to initiate these um, very characteristic molecular bond vibrations, 
and these molecular bond vibrations, they alter the frequency of the incoming laser light. And these changes in the light spectrum, they are then detected. And this is basically what is displayed in these spectra. And so in the spectra that we detect, we get very sharp peaks that are then characteristic for, um, for, for minerals in our fossils, because Raman detects not only organics, but also minerals. And quite interestingly, interactions between minerals and the organics. So light spectroscopy is the only way to get this kind of information about the interactions between organic and inorganic building blocks. So when you say interactions, you mean a dead organism dies and it's in sediment. And then let's say pyrite infuses into the fossil you can see the you can see what the remnants of the pyrite or how the pyrite interacted with the organic remains of the dead creature yeah so that is that is really it so for example for paratized fossils as well as for phosphatized fossils we basically see that you know you have like the original tissue in most of most of the cases preserved as like a carbonaceous remnant right where we have our our cross-linked original biomolecules now basically as polymers present and um, these polymers, they interact chemically with the pyrite. They initially attract the precipitation of pyrite and its um, ionic building right. blocks. And so eventually, like many of these specific interactions, they, they are stable in deep time. And wow. uh, that, that is quite exciting. It basically tells us that different tissues attract different kinds of minerals. What again means that different tissues within the same organism have a different potential to fossilize and then to the fossil record. And so that explains some of the biases that we actually observe. So when I see a piece of petrified wood with a tree ring, that still has the organic... I always thought there's no organics left. There's no carbon left. There's no organic molecules, that it's pure inorganic. But you're saying that the agate or whatever, the opal, whatever it turned into, is has the remnants of the original organic molecules from the living tree? So for silicified fossils, it depends a little bit because most silicification processes are somewhat hydrothermally initiated, what means right. the, the fluids that enter, they are usually very hot. <laughs> right, and so okay, so that, very that aggressive. It destroys the organic. Mostly, um, we know there are some silicified right. fossils that still have like original organic remnants of, of the template tissues. Um, but for paratized, so I picked the wrong fossil. Then. <laughs> if you were, if we had if we had stayed with the paratized fossils, it would have worked perfectly. Yeah, so, okay. Wrong <laughs> analogy, but let me ask a, another analogy. And, and excuse the pun, but uh, I just have to do it. When you are picking up good vibrations, oh, <laughs> when you're picking up the good vibrations from the rock, going from vibrations, how do you get from the good vibrations to color? to the color of dinosaur eggs, how did that happen? So that's a really colorful example. Thank you. Oh, I see what you <laughs> uh, did there. Eventually, we look at our spectra. And so what we always do is, right, when we look at fossils and we want to address one specific question, we obviously have to look at, at modern representatives, like modern tissue representatives, um, for the kind of question we're interested in. And so when we were basically interested in understanding if egg color, which is based, um, chemically speaking, um, on a very, very simple system. So there are only two color pigments um, that um, create all the diversity of egg color that you see in modern birds. So basically, like, you know, the color range from like blue to pink to brown. Um, we have eggs spots. that are spotted and speckled. Yes, all of this 
it is only two small chemical pigments. So it is chemically a dream. No other egg-laying animal has colors pigment in their eggs, correct? Just birds. Exactly. So if we look at the living animals, it is only birds that have, well, this incredible diversity of egg color. If we look at, um, for example, egg-laying mammals, there is no egg color. If we look at different right. kinds of lizards and snakes, there is no egg color. Just so white. It's, it's just plain white, but also like if we chemically sample it, like the same pigments that are so abundant in colored bird eggs, and sometimes even in trace amounts in, in white bird eggs, they are not present at the same concentration in these different kinds of lizard eggs or monotreme eggs, which has previously been interpreted as evidence for the fact that birds evolutionarily invented egg color. Okay. And uh, so as, you know, a paleontologist and a chemist, I thought oh, it's such an intriguing system ah, to analyze. Yeah. And so if we look at the um, fossil record of, of eggs, um, we actually have quite exceptional coverage, taxonomically speaking, um, across the dinosaur bird transition. So when we look especially at these small raptor-like dinosaurs that are the direct ancestors, effectively, to our modern the birds. avian dinosaurs. Exactly, modern birds, right? Living dinosaurs. <laughs> I started to think... You know, if we look at these eggs, if we look at how these these eggs in in extinct dinosaurs, how they were stored in similar similarly looking nests, how we have evidence for parental care, all of this would potentially suggest that there was some kind of need for egg color. And so what really like back then that was my first ever research project. <laughs> wow. Uh, what, oh. what really got me um excited back then about this question was the fact that if you look at the evolution of open nests, right? So if we look, for example, at like lizards and snakes and crocodiles as outgroups to dinosaurs, all of them bury the eggs underground. Oh. Even even many kinds of dinosaurs bury the eggs underground, and we know this based on um, based on the very high porosity of the eggshells, which is a good measure for whether an egg was buried underground or stored in the open. Because oh, wow. if you bury okay. porosity, meaning the gas transfer, yes. the, how porous it is, and the gas transfer for oxygenation of the uh, inside of the uh, embryo. Exactly. So we can basically just like count the pores on the surface of the egg. And um, basically, like, determine a cutoff that tells us if the eggs were stored underground or basically wow, buried in, in, like, stored in open, open nests. And so we basically figured out that oviraptor dinosaurs, so that are basically some of the most, most basal, most monoraptoran dinosaurs, oviraptorids already stored their eggs in what we call semi-open nests. And there is no modern analog for that, really. So they have these, like, very elongate ellipsoidal eggs and so um their eggs they oh. have uh, a pointy end and they have a blunt end the pointy end would be sticking in the sediment but the really? egg would be practically half buried so the blunt end would be like sticking out and they would build these circular nests where they line up their eggs in multiple layers but in like the circular orientation and then we look at troodontids, which are also monoraptoran dinosaurs. They do a very similar thing, where they have the eggs half buried, half sticking in the open, circular nests. We have evidence for parental care again. And so basically, like as we then move closer and closer to modern birds, we find that all of these animals already stored the eggs in the open. And so I was very naive about this, but I just thought when eggs are stored in the open, 
there should be some kind of selective pressure, some kind of selective advantage that comes along with coloring your eggs. May it be for camouflage, for camouflage exactly, which is the obvious, obvious right. thought, thinking about visual predators, but also thinking about the way that, that parents, like the, the dinosaur parents or like the bird parents, the way they interact with their eggs, there is often some kind of visual clue, some kind of visual like, feedback. That is my egg. That's my, yes. Exactly. So, yes. <laughs> Parental care. So stay away from my eggs. Also, if you think of cuckoos and brood parasites, right? Yes. Like uh, there is basically an evolutionary arms race between lots of lots of birds that are parasitized by cuckoos, where they evolve very sophisticated color patterns to basically make sure they can distinguish their eggs from yeah. the cuckoo eggs. Um, so you know, like considering like this importance of of visual clues related to open nesting habits, I thought egg color may actually have evolved a lot earlier than we thought. But that was an incredibly bold claim and a hypothesis to test back then. So wow. we ventured into it and looked for the presence of these two egg color pigments. Um, first was- And you did this at age 19, right? Just kidding. <laughs> no, at that point I was 23. So I was, so already... I was only 23. No way. Yeah. An, oh, an okay. old Sorry, yeah. so old. You were so old then. Oh. <laughs> and wow. so we started, we started with mass spectrometry, um, which is basically, um, a um, way of, um, so you have an idea of what kind of compounds you look for. And I mean, there are only two color pigments that create color in birds. So we thought, okay, you know, it's pretty straightforward. We just look for the presence of these two pigments in dinosaur eggs. And so with high performance liquid chromatography, which is basically like a way of extracting compounds from the eggshell and then using a molecular scale to figure out if the two compounds we're interested in uh -huh. are there or not. Oh, um, wow. We figured out okay. that the two pigments were actually there in these overruptured dinosaur eggs. And from there, we went wow. on and basically wanted to sample more. But the problem is that many of these dinosaur eggs that sort of like bridge the gap between overruptures and modern birds, many of these eggs are incredibly rare, if not unique. So, for example, we got um, one of the only <laughs> Deinonychus eggs host at the American Museum of Natural History um, to sample. And because there is only one egg that we have attributed to Deinonychus, we had to find a way to analyze it without you know, grinding up a lot of the eggshell. And so we decided to settle for Raman spectroscopy, which is a non-destructive tool. And so we built a training data set to basically distinguish colored eggs from not colored eggs based on modern eggshells. And then we took that to the fossils. We figured out a couple of fingerprint signals that are related to the brown pigment called protoporphyrin and uh, the blue pigment called biliverdin. And with that, eventually, we were able to not only figure out if dinosaur eggs were colored. Uh, and we basically like, found evidence for that. So egg color is not an avian innovation. It definitely traces back wow. to their dinosaur ancestors, the Manoraptoran ancestors. But we also managed to map out the signals associated with some of these color pigments, which basically told us that many of these eggs had already spots and speckles. So this insane diversity of egg color that we see in, in modern birds, suggesting that lots of these strategies associated with, for example, avoiding brood parasites, uh, recognizing your own eggs, like all of this was already in place. So dinosaurs were actually very sophisticated 
parents much more comparable to birds than to reptiles. That is absolutely genius. I, 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 and you're 23 years old. And just to recap, basically, the only animals in the world to have colored eggs right now are, are birds. To ever evolve colored eggs are birds, as far as we know. So you figured out a way to actually really prove not only that dinosaurs had colored eggs, but actually specifically which group of dinosaurs they came out of, the Banaraptorans. Blown away. Wow. How far back does colored eggs yeah, go? Yeah, there you go. So we are to some degree limited to what is preserved, right? And so if we look at the fossil record of dinosaur eggs, uh, of all kinds of fossils, effectively, um, it can be very patchy. And so the only eggs that we sampled, like that, that produced evidence for color are Cretaceous and age. And so here it is obviously very exciting because if we go further back in time and we look at um, the earliest dinosaur eggs that have been found, they are Jurassic in age. Right. It, it gets quite Triassic, well, early Jurassic. Are there Triassic eggs? Um, there are a couple of eggshells associated with um, with uh, sauropodomorphs that um, are, to my knowledge, dated to the early Jurassic, which then represent the the oldest eggs that we have right. properly identified to date. So there are not many eggs. Um, from from the Jurassic in general, or from the Triassic, which would be absolutely well, exciting. And this is really one of the frontiers to like find these earliest right. eggs and figure well, out what yeah, the, happened there. We've had other guests on. I'm uh, thinking about Luis Chiapes and uh, some of the sauropod eggs, uh, but I guess those are Cretaceous too, though. Yes. But what color are sauropod eggs? The, uh, if you had, uh, can you guess at all? Yeah, so we've analyzed sauropod eggs as well, and we have uh, actually analyzed a couple of South American sauropod eggs as well, which are very similar to the ones that Louise probably talked about. Right. Um, so they are titanosaur eggs. Yes. And um, we did not find, in all of the sauropod eggs we've sampled, we did not find any evidence for color pigments. So oh. they were presumably plain white. If we look at the porosity of these eggshells, we are quite certain that they were buried underground. Mm. So... Oh. The eggs you said that are sharp at one end and blunt at the top, which are half buried, are they more porous in the half buried part? Yes, they are, which mm. is quite oh. fascinating. Um, and so this is work that has been done by one of my uh, collaborators in more detail, Subra Yang, um, who's at the, um, I think, National Museum in Taiwan at the moment. And so he basically looked at the distribution of pores across sections of the eggshell. And so it's quite right. exciting to actually see that we have this gradient. And I think it is really worthy, like eventually, like using synchrotron data or comparable imaging techniques that allow us to get um, a clearer idea of the pore distribution across the entire egg and to see like how it actually changes, especially in some of these potentially half-buried monorupture and eggshells. Because it is... Are there extant half-buried eggs? No, there is nothing no, comparable. No, it's not in the... So what's the advantage of having porous eggs? I don't... Get that. The advantage of having very you could bury them. Yeah, the advantage of having very oh. porous eggs. It is basically um, tied to the fact that once you bury your eggs underground, right, where they are pretty much sheltered, invisible to predators right. on the surface. Um, once you bury your eggs underground, the oxygen partial pressure in the soil is obviously a lot lower, and so to to, to sustain the respiratory needs of the embryo that's developing in there, you just need to have more pores. 
to actually channel enough oxygen on the ground I see. Okay, to I the get developing embryo. I, I get it. And, uh, and this is a silly question, but uh, I have a, well, a greater appreciation now when I go to the grocery store and looking at for those brown eggs, uh, when you go to the grocery store, does that cross your mind? Which which one should I buy, the white or the brown eggs? Well, there are actually also chicken breeds that lay blue eggs. So there is really? um, a lineage, I think, related yeah, to the Araucana fowl that lays um, like these. They are like pale, minty blue eggs. You can get them in the supermarket. Very tasty. But yeah, from time to time, you you know, you go through your through your supermarket and you start to to just see chemical structures sort of like floating over the different items, you know. You know, we've talked about the Tully monster, the uh, dinosaur egg colors, but you are also able to determine the metabolic rates from the breathing waste that actually shows what? the metabolic rates, whether or not... I didn't see that in the yeah, notes. Yeah, it's in the notes, Dave. <laughs> Read the notes. But the breathing waste, what is breathing waste and what does that tell us about the metabolic rates of ancient creatures, i.e. warm-blooded dinosaurs? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a great question. So when we talk about the metabolic rate of animals, we basically describe the amount of oxygen that is respired relative to the body mass um, in a certain constrained interval of time. Basically, the amount of oxygen relative to like the total body mass that is needed to sustain our physiology. Right. Now, if we look at warm-blooded animals like us and uh, all our relatives, all mammals, the only other group of warm-blooded animals that we know of, which are the modern birds, they have very high metabolic rates. And their very high metabolic rates are basically responsible for the amount of excess heat that is produced that allows us and modern birds to actively thermoregulate. Now, if we compare the metabolic rates among mammals and birds, the only groups of warm-blooded animals alive today, we see that mammals have generally much lower metabolic rates still than modern birds. So in, mm. within birds, there's quite a range of metabolic rates, depending on you know, whether birds are migratory or not. But so birds basically have the highest metabolic rates in the animal kingdom. We could effectively Wait, call is, them... Is a metabolic rate measured by an hour, by a day, or an organism's lifetime? Traditionally, the metabolic rate is measured per hour. Okay. Like, which is the values that you find in the literature, mostly. Right. But obviously, you can scale it up mathematically. Very And yes, yeah, so basically, if we, if we kind of like want to then distinguish like, you know, the degrees of how much metabolic heat is produced compared between mammals and birds, we would probably call mammals warm-blooded, but birds effectively hot-blooded. I see. Which even, yeah. even manifests in the, fact that, in the fact that birds have very, a very high body temperature, much higher than uh, mammals. I think uh, the average uh, avian body temperature is around 42 degrees Celsius. So it's a lot hotter than us mammals growing at around 36 uh, to 37. So you can actually, so this, this uh, signature is there in the breathing waste, as you say, in, into the very structure of the fossils somehow? Yeah, so... Yeah, how do you find, how do yes. you find the metabolic rate of a yes. fossil? <laughs> Someone like, no, yeah, I'm an old fossil, but anyway, yeah. I think you're cold-blooded, Jimmy. <laughs> Sometimes I am, Dave. Getting back to the breathing waste, so the whole yes. idea um, behind our molecular proxy is basically 
that we have these animals with high metabolic rates that are warm-blooded, and then we have all kinds of animals with lower metabolic rates, like lizards and snakes and, uh, and turtles and crocodiles that have lower metabolic rates and do not produce that much excess heat, so they can't actively thermoregulate, they are cold-blooded. So in the end, we can basically use the metabolic rate to figure out as a measure for you know which animals would score as warm-blooded versus cold-blooded. And for living animals, it actually works very well. We looked at the um, specifically the molecular manifestation of what we then call aerobic respiration, so basically oxygen respiration. And so on a molecular level, these um, you know aerobic respiration, oxygen respiration, it happens at the inner mitochondrial membrane. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. There's, hold a, on. there's a lot there yes. to unpack, but I yeah. can't in, in a cell, there are organelles. One of them is called a mitochondria. The powerhouse of the cell. And powerhouse, and it converts chemicals to energy. Yes. Correct? Which power the cell. Which power the cell, which fuel the entire organism. Hmm. Right, right. Well, just, just, so we're just talking with one cell here. You're able to see that conversion of and that conversion of energy leaves a trace yes it is in the end a an unwanted process for the animal itself so as we chemically convert oxygen into chemical energy that then you know fuels the cell fuels the organism we accidentally effectively form these reactive oxygen species now reactive oxygen species are small very reactive very short-lived radicals that do actually... They're not antioxidants. They're not the antioxidants we want to get out of our bodies. Well, they are basically scavenged by antioxidants, which is our body's defense against these kinds of compounds. So reactive oxygen species, they do a lot of damage in all kinds of cells and, you know, structures. They cause aging. Exactly. Why do you say species? I hear species is referring to a diversity of animals. Why is it called a species on a molecular level? So here the chemists actually found inspiration from the biologists. And because there is ah. a, a whole palette of different kinds of, ah. um, of reactive oxygen derivatives that form, we call them reactive oxygen species. Species, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> huh, that's interesting. There's a molecular kingdom here. Ah, the chemical kingdom. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> so you're able to see these little bad guys 400 million years in the future. I'm able to see the damage that they do. <laughs> so oh. it is a little a little more uh, morbid, I guess, in some ways. Um, you know, reactive oxygen species, they, they are super reactive and, and very short-lived. And so what they basically do is that they, um, they like to penetrate them through the mitochondrial membrane. So they leave basically the mitochondria and the powerhouse of the cell. At that point, they are in the cell itself. And within the cell itself, while they penetrate the membrane of the mitochondrion, they tend to react quite often with these membrane lipids. And, um, which is a fat. Which is a fat, yes. Uh, again, a diversity of compounds that are very reactive and that do a lot of damage. So we, we don't want them, but unfortunately they form. And so the reactive carbonyl species, then they are a little longer lived like in terms of their shelf life, in terms of reacting with other things that they really should not react with in the cell. So they live a little bit longer. We're talking like minutes to days. And so they are more mobile. So they basically start precipitating with all kinds of proteins within the cell and basically precipitate in any kind of connective tissue that contains proteins. 
because they really like to react with some kinds of amino acid residues in the proteins. So wait, you can see, so let me simplify this. Yes. Does a hot-blooded creature have more of these things and a warm-blooded creature have less of these signatures? This is exactly how it works. So we basically, wow. yeah. so like this whole process, it's called metabolic stress which is really what it does. Okay. It damages your body. <laughs> um, right. It makes us yeah. age. Whoa. It's all the metabolic stress. And we basically look at, the, at the, the relative abundance of metabolic stress markers that precipitate in direct relationship to the amount of oxygen respired. So they are a very good measure of the metabolic rate of the animal. Wow. So you were wow. able to actually determine not only that dinosaurs are warm-blooded, but actually sort of the degrees of hot-blooded to kind of warm-blooded. Because I saw that paper, too, that kind of broke it out. Can you just kind of run through the, the groups of dinosaurs? Who's hot and who's yeah, who's not. Yeah, who's not. <laughs> In the dinosaur world, so all our dinosaur-loving kids can get this. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So we basically wanted to figure out if the very high metabolic rates that we see in modern birds, which effectively make them hot-blooded, mm -hmm. if these very high metabolic rates are, again, an invention of modern birds, or if they actually inherited from their dinosaur or even yeah. more primitive ancestors. And so we basically use this marker that we have that measures the amount of oxidative stress, these compounds, they fossilize very well. Unfortunately, right. like our bodies are unable to get rid of, of the metabolic stress damage. So it's perfect when it comes to looking at fossils and evidence mm. for uh, metabolic damage. And so we basically measure and calibrate the relative abundance of these metabolic stress markers. Um, and then we looked at all kinds of amniotes, which is basically the group that includes mammals and their ancestors, as well as the reptile lineage, which includes uh, reptiles and snakes, which also includes then, of course, crocodiles, dinosaurs, and birds are dinosaurs, so also modern birds. And so in this sample set, we actually got some quite exciting results, some of them somewhat unexpected, um, where, of course, you know, mammals come out as warm-blooded. That is not much of a surprise. We figured that they are in our data set, where we at the moment, we're sampling in more detail what's happening there in the early ancestors of mammals. But so in the data set that we have so far, we basically see that um, the synapsids like Dimetrodon, they were not yet warm-blooded. So this mm. is really something that comes wow. up in the more oh. modern mammals. Now, then we looked at the reptile branch and we had a plesiosaur in the data set. And at the moment, we're also extending this sample in more detail, looking at plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs and mosasaurs and all these things all these different kinds of marine reptiles. But so for the plesiosaur that we have in our published data set, it basically comes out as warm-blooded, hmm. which is quite exciting, but matches very well the isotope paleothermometry data that we have for these different types of marine reptiles. What about uh, mosasaurs and you know other marine reptiles? Yeah, so uh, Dalton Meyer, uh, who is a graduate student at Yale, can hopefully soon tell you more about that. Okay, oh. stay tuned for that. What about what about the dicynodonts, these so-called mammal-like reptiles? Are they well, warm-blooded? We're looking at it in more detail because I didn't have yeah. any in okay, the data set. Okay, so you don't have the answer just yet. No, but, and this is absolutely amazing. But, this is proof. But this, this is proof, but, but we're getting to the dinosaurs. We're getting to the dinosaurs, yes. So, you know, we're moving further on. 
in the tree. And um, then I guess the next very interesting group is the pterosaurs. So mm -hmm. the um, flying reptiles, right? And so pterosaurs come out as warm-blooded, yeah. um, not much, but effectively hot-blooded like modern birds. So at this point, we start to wow. see the high metabolic rates, very different from the mammal and the plesiosaur, which have like the lower metabolic rates, but evolved them independently. And so it's basically in the plesiosaurs that are the, the closest relatives um, to the dinosaurs in our data set, mm. where we see a single evolutionary origin of hot-bloodedness, of avian, so bird-style hot-bloodedness, which we shouldn't call bird-style hot-bloodedness. We should really call it now ornithodiran hot-bloodedness, which is how we call that group combining wow. pterosaurs and dinosaurs. Within the dinosaurs, all dinosaurs were ancestrally hot-blooded, like modern birds, which I think is quite interesting to think about because it means that hot-bloodedness, these very high metabolic rates, they evolved long before active flight, egg brooding based on, based on body heat. They evolved long before you know, carnivores started being bipedal, running, hunting prey. They evolved apparently in coincidence with when we see these different kinds of integumentary structures showing up in the fossil record. So when we see, you know, like... What kind of structures? Uh, we again? call them integumentary structures. So any kinds of like hairy structures or feathery structures that potentially okay, right. insulate the body, oh, uh, okay. which I believe is also quite interesting as an observation for the moment. Then within the dinosaurs, though, we realize that there is quite a bit of variation, like we see it in modern birds, right? Ancestrally, all of them are warm-blooded, but then we observe in the group of the Ornithischian dinosaurs um, okay. a couple of reductions in the metabolic rate towards actual cold-bloodedness. So, so they're hot-blooded first and then they go toward, wow, okay, all then right. They, then they reduce it and then they go towards a much lower metabolic rate that for the moment plots in the data set with like actual cold-bloodedness which is really? uh, quite you mean as, as cold as a, as a lizard? As dependent on environmental temperatures as a lizard. Right, right. As sunshine. And, yeah. yeah. And so like these are basically like some of like very the very charismatic groups. So for example, if you think about Stegosaurus, it comes out right. with a very low metabolic rate. If you look at Triceratops, wow. you know, all these like very heavy quadrupedal herbivores. Uh, they come out as um, having these very low metabolic rates. But then also um, we sampled a Mayasaurus, which is at least facultatively bipedal. Uh, and uh, even Mayasaurus comes out having a very low metabolic rate. Now, that's a duck it's a duck right. Yes, duck it's a duckbill dinosaur. Um, I think people probably know Triceratops. Uh, right? oh, yeah. It's like one of the Ceratopsian dinosaurs. And then Stegosaurus is one of the armored dinosaurs. And I think it's quite fascinating because if we look at the... So like the sister group to the Ornithischian dinosaurs, the Sauriscian dinosaurs, we find that there are actually very high metabolic rates uh, in the long-necked dinosaurs. And then, of course, in the theropods leading up to modern birds. So with the, like the raptors, we start getting hot-blooded, more all or less, of, right? All of the dinosaurs were ancestrally hot-blooded. Yes, yes. So the raptors, wow. they were also hot-blooded. But like, it is quite interesting to see that this hot-bloodedness, I mean, it increases towards modern birds, but like the, the mechanism that generates the hot-bloodedness, it was already present in the ancestors of, of raptors. So like in all dinosaurs. The Jurassic it would have started, or the Triassic Way it would back. have started. So we're now trying to really constrain when 
warm-bloodedness evolved and i think this is one of right. the one of the most exciting aspects of doing this kind of work because you know like we really want to understand what drives animals to experiment mm -hmm. with their metabolism what drives animals to basically tune up their metabolic rates and effectively become hot-blooded when is there the need but also the necessary environment to actually like do this to manifest within a population warm-bloodedness do you see it going back into the paleozoic perhaps or, or well, not carbon carboniferous is when the dimetrodons were running around yeah, so right? correct yes yes yes, yes so you're now right we're sampling specifically for um the mammalian lineage we're very interested in what happens across the the permo-triassic mass extinction ah, boundary yes. which right, is right. a very interesting time interval where obviously we're freeing ecological niches right so <laughs> with the mass by, extinction yeah. kill them all and then free that yes I see. and then yeah. let, Start them, over let again. them experiment yeah. you know like let them physiologically do whatever they want to do um so i think that is a very interesting time interval to look at the emergence of warm-bloodedness in our ancestors in the mammals and then for the dinosaurs we're now sampling um further down the tree of life looking at uh, Triassic samples and a um, couple more Jurassic samples to figure out, you know, like how in the, in the dinosaur tree, warm-bloodedness came up. Absolutely revolutionary, the work that you are doing. It's, uh, I, my mind has been totally it blown. Is. Wow. My mind is blown. I'm, Thank you very much. <laughs> I'll never buy another white egg again or look at a dog <laughs> the same in the uh, metabolic rates in my own aging body the same after this. But let me ask you this, Yasmina, we ask all our guests this, if you could uh, go time traveling and you could only go back in time, although some people said they want to go forward in time, I would like to ask you what point in the prehistoric past, what extraordinary epoch, what awesome geologic age, what perfect past moment would you want to go to and what would you want to see? Oh, this is a very hard question, right? Because there are so many very interesting events in the evolutionary history of life. But I think as a scientist, I would probably pick the one moment in evolution about which we know absolutely nothing. Mm. So I would go back to the very, very origin of life, looking at how life evolved prior to the advent and the evolution and the sort of like foundation of morphology, of cellular morphology, because at that for that period in time, we don't have any fossils, right? If there is no morphology, if there are only molecules, it is very difficult to trace. And I think this is one of the most exciting questions that is completely untackled, but also one of the greatest opportunities for my molecular biosignatures. Wow. So I would, you know, want to analyze some of these very, very old rocks with the oldest signatures of organic carbon on our planet. And then I would want to travel back in time to actually figure out if my predictions are right. <laughs> Do you think that's my place? Wow. By the way, that's my that's... place. I want to see the day. I want to see the day that a bunch of protein chains and inorganic molecule or organic molecules form into that first cell that becomes a living. I just realized that's, that's a chemical see. reaction. That's a chemical thing yes, that happened. It's all but chemical. But wait a minute, Yasmina, you might actually find and. The, the origin of life and created. Have in, you studied wow. the ancient rocks from Canada and the ones from Australia uh, on a uh, with with your Raman's spectroscopy? We've, we've looked at a couple of Ediacaran rocks 
which are of course a lot younger, but it's still the oldest I've looked at so far. So there is the temptation. I definitely got to go way before. I, yes, Africa. I definitely want to look at yeah. all the rocks in the future. And yeah, um, yeah it is. Well, we're going to be hearing a lot from you in or the future. Or Martian rocks. Martian rocks might have yeah. something. Hmm. They'll be here in about eight years. <laughs> wow. Okay. They'll be back. Yeah. Well, they've got the samples they're retrieving, and they're going to bring them back. All right. Well, I'm going to ask my question. This makes me really feel bad that I've got a D in chemistry in college. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do understand a little tiny bit of it. But you've uh, really, boy, boy, I'm intrigued. I really am, and I'm going to dive dive down deeper. I'm impressed with your knowledge, and especially the fact you started university so young. I mean, that's just amazing. What advice do you have for women who want to become scientists in this still mostly male-dominated field? Yeah, that is that is a very important topic. I mean, especially in the paleo sciences, we're looking at one of the least diverse disciplines across all the sciences, <laughs> which is um, something that I think we're quite actively trying to improve. And it is obviously the next generation of scientists that that you know like has to like come in and really like live like through their passion and and decide to like venture on on academic careers related to paleobiology. So, I think the best advice. The kind of advice that I would give my younger self would be to just do it. Like, it doesn't matter, you know, if someone tells you that you have to choose, you can only be a paleontologist or a chemist. You can't do both at a time. Just because something doesn't seem particularly uh, compatible at a moment in time, it doesn't mean that it will be like this forever. So I think the the best, any young woman, any young interested scientist, future scientist can do to have the best possible career is to like live out all their creative ideas. Paleontology is so incredibly important in terms of, of course, having the fossil record as an incredible archive of how life responded to environmental change, to ecological change through time, to really like, you know, learn how to read this information may it be molecular, may it be physical, may it be whatever, to really make use of this information in the best possible way, we need all the bright and talented minds who would be excited to do this work and effectively use this knowledge to, you know, help with biodiversity conservation, um, do something good for society, for our planet. So follow your dreams and don't take no for an answer. Exactly. And save the planet in the process. <laughs> This was great, Yasmina. Thank you so much. And the, the discoveries you've made and the doors you've opened in paleo molecular biology is astounding. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed it. And you have just blown my mind today. And I'm sure David's too. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much yeah. for the opportunity to be here, talk uh, about some of our most recent research and for like helping me breaking it down. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. And we'll see you at the Field Museum with Jing Mei O'Connor, huh? Hope so. Yes, definitely. <laughs> All right. See ya. Take care and bye. You too. Bye-bye. Well, I had a lot of trepidation <laughs> entering that <laughs> interview because... Reading all the research was really gobbledygook. I to just me. made my brain hurt trying to get through some yeah. of the uh, the scientific papers. Been uh, I was intimidated too because 
I'm not yeah. a chemistry kind of guy, but I'm glad that we kind of, you know, asked her the questions and tried yeah. to dumb it down. Excuse yeah. my bad puns, she was great. but uh, the puns. She was yeah. great at, ex well, she'd had one too, but she was great at explaining it. So, uh, yeah. And, and it was astounding. It was astounding the fact they can determine whether an animal is a vertebrate or invertebrate based on its chemical signature. But the, she sorted out all the dinosaurs in terms of hot blooded. The plesiosaurs and the pterosaurs being warm. This woman is I, I, barely 30 years old and is upending yeah. our understanding of life. I yeah. am a force in she, paleontology. That just, I mean, I, I say this a lot that, you know, talk about guests that blow you away. Yasmina is, is truly a revolutionary person. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, wow. I'm I'm kind of sad. I don't know why, but I'm kind of sad that Triceratops and Stegosaurus are kind of cold-blooded. Uh, by the way, they're, they're 100 million years apart, but still, yeah, that they're kind of cold-blooded. But they or... started out. But I mean, that's what's extraordinary is that she's able to see these nuances. You know, it's determining that dinosaurs indeed are, you know, higher metabolic. They are warm-blooded, if not hot-blooded. But there's degrees, and we're actually through evolution, through time. You know, it's always never as simple. It's like, but this this finding that uh, hot bloodedness, warm bloodedness, goes back probably to the, uh, yeah. the Paleozoic before the Permian, Triassic extinction. No, that was really extraordinary. These are it brings up so many questions. I'm never going to go look. I'm never going to look at a, a a bird egg the same. You know, when I eat my eggs in the morning. Hmm. Wow. You know, just further proof, absolutely, birds are without a doubt at this point. They are dinosaurs. Yeah. Well, yesterday, you know, you know, blue jays are corvids. They are supposedly have much higher intelligence than the average chicken. Mm -hmm. I uh, have a lot of scrub jays here because I live in an oak chaparral. And I was walking around my house. Yes. And I see this blue jay on the ground. And he stops and he looks at me. Yes, and assesses you. And he looked at me with intent. Oh, wow. yeah. Can I take this yeah. guy? And then he kind of looked to the side, looked to the other side, and he ran away, not as though he was scared of me, as though I'm not interested in you. And I just had this moment of intelligence from this bird that spooked me. This really happened yesterday. <laughs> you had a moment with a scrub jay. Yeah, cool. Signing off from Ojai, California, where I'm leaving home for two months to go travel through Australia, but I'll have plenty of time to do interviews and edit these podcasts. And you are back in... I am in Ketchikan, where we are experiencing yet another atmospheric river. Yes, we're in the river. <laughs> we're deep within the river. The river has been going and going, and the Ketchikan Creek is flowing and flowing. All right, open your window. Let me hear that rain. Yeah, there it is. The humpies are being washed wow. down the stream wow. now. Their carcasses are going out to sea to feed the plankton. Signing off from beautiful rainy Ketchikan, Alaska. See you later, Dave. See you later, Ray, and thank you. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time.
Paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.